Good morning, Rogers Park. Good morning. I'm looking up here and I'm seeing snow. Merry Christmas. It's Easter. It's Easter week. I woke up this morning wondering if uh, I was preparing the right sermon. My name is Phil Adams. If we haven't met, um, it's my joy to be a pastor up here on the, the pastoral team at Park um, and bring God's word with you to, to you this morning. If you've got a Bible there, please turn to uh, John chapter 12. And we're going to read John chapter 12, verses 12 to 26. John 12, 12 to 26. Like I said, it's, uh, I say Palm Sunday, like Palm. I don't People were laughing about that this morning. I should say palm. It feels strange to me. Uh, this morning's Palm Sunday, <laughs> a day at the beginning of Holy Week, and the week that ends with the death of Christ. Uh, so Palm Sunday is a day in which we set our sights uh, forward, and we look at the, the week that's ahead. Um, it's a day that we begin to prepare ourselves and remember um, the crucifixion of, of Christ uh, for the sins of the world. Uh, this be- begins with what is known as the triumphal entry, which is the passage that we're going to look at this morning. When Jesus arrives into Jerusalem, Jesus was crucified in, crucified in Jerusalem, um, or just outside the, the city walls. Jesus spent his final week in Jerusalem. Um, today we are looking at his arrival into Jerusalem at the beginning of that week. Uh, so let's read John chapter 12, verses 20, 12 to John chapter 12, verse 12 to 26. It says this. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it was written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples didn't understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, when they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him, the crowd that had been with him when he called out Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard that he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that that you, that we are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So as these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, they asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus, and Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Let's pray. God, we come to your word this morning. God, we come on this special Sunday, God, where we're thinking of your life and what you did, God, and your intentionality where you directed yourself to the cross. So God, I pray that your word will touch our hearts this morning and touch our minds. God, may we be refreshed by your word. God, may we be renewed by your word. May we uh, leave today grounded on truth. God, there are so many narratives and stories about what this world is about, what our lives are about, God. And I pray, God, that we will be reminded that, the, that this world is about you. 
God. This book is the, the grand narrative. It is the story, the cosmic story of the universe, God. So remind us of that this morning in your name. Amen. Verse 12, the verse, verse, first verse that we read says this. The next day the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. This verse begins to set the scene for us this morning. In this verse, we read of a feast that's happening in Jerusalem. We read of a large crowd that, that's at this feast and, we, feast, and we read that this large crowd has heard that Jesus is on his way. There is anticipation in this first verse. There's anticipation in verse 12. We know from earlier in chapter 12 that the, the feast that's happening in Jerusalem at this time is the Passover celebration. It's a week that's set apart in the Jewish calendar every year to celebrate liberation. And specifically to celebrate Israel's liberation from captivity in Egypt hundreds of years ago. This week was ingrained in Jewish life and ritual. It was important to their identity as the people of God, the people of Yahweh. So during this week, Jews came from all across Israel... And further afield to celebrate together in Jerusalem. Blood would have flowed through the streets as each family went to the temple and sacrificed a lamb. Everyone in the city was playing their part in their identity. Everyone was there to play their part in their shared identity as the nation of Israel and the people of God. The city would have been literally bulging at the seams. The city would have had about ten times its normal size. The amount of people there would have been huge. The city would have been beating with a sense of nationalism and pride and, and Jewish culture. Hundreds of thousands of visitors would have been cramming and climbing through the streets, pitching their tents outside of the city, resting their feet from days of travel and residing and watching over all of this was Rome. Because despite this being a Jewish festival in a Jewish city, Jerusalem at this time was under Roman occupation. The Roman army was the authority residing over the streets as Jerusalem tried to celebrate their Jewish identity. Jerusalem, Israel was being ruled by another country when the people of Israel were trying to celebrate their own country. And there was increase, this was increasingly creating tension. The, the Roman soldiers would have had their tear gas at the ready. The army would have been in formation at the, the hot spots in case something broke out. Ready to disperse the crowds if necessary. Liberation was once again on the minds of the crowd. Liberation was in the air. Uprising was in the air. The Jews had strength in numbers. Maybe Rome could be sent home. Maybe the celebration of a previous liberation could build enough momentum for liberation today. Maybe if there was a king who could kick things off. In the months and days prior to the, to the Passover, Jesus' reputation had been growing. Intrigue had been growing. One of the key moments was when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. If anything had grabbed people's attention and shook the power structures of Jerusalem, it was that there was a man, or people were hearing of a man, that had raised another man from the dead. And in chapter 11, verses 45 to 48 in John, we read of the chain of events that were triggered after Lazarus was raised from, raised from the dead. It says, 
Chapter 11, verse 45, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what Jesus did, that is, raised Lazarus from the dead, they believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told the, the Pharisees what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered, they gathered as a council and said, what are we going to do for this man performs many, many signs? If we let him go on like this, everyone's going to believe in him. And the Romans will come and they will take away our place and our nation. Right now the Roman army is occupying us. They are taxing us, but at least they're letting us live. If we let Jesus go on like this, everyone will believe in him. Everyone will revolt against Rome. If we let him go on like this, the Romans will remove the peace that we've brokered for. We can't let Jesus go on like this. And then we get to Chapter 11, verse 53, it says, So from that day on, the Pharisees and the religious leaders made plans to put Jesus to death. But the crowds, the people were becoming more and more intrigued and enamored that Jesus could be the key to winning their national freedom. So as Jesus makes his way towards Jerusalem... In verses 17 and verses 18 of chapter 12, we read the impact that the raising of Lazarus was having on Jesus' arrival. It says in verse 17 and verse 18 of chapter 12 that the crowd, had been with Je- the crowd that had been with Jesus when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. They kept talking about it. They kept telling everyone about it. The reason why the crowd went out to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. So as Jesus entered into Jerusalem, there was a crowd behind him, following him, proclaiming what Jesus had done, raising a man from the dead. There was a crowd in front of him, welcoming him into Jerusalem. Jesus was a hot spot of attention. All while the Pharisees wanted the peace kept and Rome wanted their power kept and the crowds wanted their freedom back. The Pharisees wanted their peace kept. Rome wanted their power kept. And the crowds wanted their freedom back. And if we jump back to verses 12 of chapter 12, we see what this crowd looked like. Verse 13 says, So they took branches of palm trees and they went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Maybe if there was a king to kick things off. Verse 13 is just one verse, but it reveals a whole lot about what they're thinking. Firstly, number one, the crowds were waving palm branches, which were increasingly becoming a national symbol or even a national symbol of victory. Number two, the crowds were shouting, Hosanna, 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 which is actually a Hebrew word from Psalm 118, verse 25, meaning salvation is now. Hosanna is an expression. It is a state of mind expressing that salvation is here. Salvation has come. Thirdly, the crowds were saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. The first half of that's also from Psalm 118 and is a blessing over one who is sent by God. And the term king of Israel is a messianic identifier for the one within Jewish history who would come and bring their freedom. All in all, this is a picture of a crowd waving their star-spangled banner. I had to Google that expression. I wasn't sure what it was. <laughs> Star-spangled star banner proclaiming <laughs> liberation is here. Does that relate? <laughs> 
Do you guys weave this, the banner? No? I think Dally's telling me to move on. Okay. Liber <laughs> Liberation is here. Cheers to the one. Here's to the one sent by God to bring our freedom. Hope. Freedom. A savior. A king. A conqueror. And then verses 14. And Jesus found a donkey and sat on it. Verses 13 and 14 have this kind of juxtaposition going on where it goes from liberation is here, cheers to the one, here's to the one sent by God to bring our freedom, our king. And then literally the next verse, 14, and Jesus found a donkey and sat on it. No war horse, no chariot, no security detail, no armored vehicle. Jesus found a donkey and sat on it. One of the most striking moments in the week to come is when Jesus is arrested and he's with Pilate, the, the highest Roman authority in the city, and Pilate can't work out what Jesus has done. And he, he, he wants to keep his power and he wants to keep the peace, so he goes to the Jewish crowds and asks and says, I, I, will, give you back, I will give back to you Jesus, your king. You just have to choose him and I'll release him. You can have Jesus, or you can have another man that's been arrested. Your choice, Jesus, or a man called Barabbas. And they cry, Barabbas, Barabbas, give us Barabbas. And then there's this little comment. Now, Barabbas was a robber, which scholars believe is, is, a, is a term that also means terrorist or rebel. And if we look at the Gospel of Mark, he says Barabbas was also a murderer in an insurrection against Rome. Cheers to the one, here's to our king. And then a few days later, no wait, something's off with him. Give us Barabbas, the rebel against Rome. And when Jesus was being arrested under the cover of darkness in the Garden of Gethsemane, once Jesus is identified, Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, pulls out a sword and he strikes the soldier on the head and he cuts off one of his ears to which Jesus turns to Peter and says, put your sword away. Again, when Jesus is before Pilate, Pilate is increasingly frustrated having to deal with Jesus. Pilate says, I am, am I a Jew? Do I know what the problem is? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answers, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting. That I might not be delivered over to the Jews. My kingdom is not of this world. If we keep going after Jesus has said this, Pilate went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And they cried out, not this man, give us Barabbas. I wonder if the thought that they would, in the end, prefer Barabbas over Jesus was first planted in their minds when the palm branches were waving liberation was in the air but Jesus sat on a donkey not a war horse I wonder if the donkey raised some suspicion that this so-called king might not be the king they really wanted I wonder if the donkey raised some suspicion that Jesus might not be the rebel they were looking I wonder if they had heard that Jesus had told Peter to put his sword away 
Rogers Park, in the coming week, we can do something that the crowds in Jerusalem couldn't do. We can pretend that Jesus is the king of our agenda while the crowds in Jerusalem couldn't. We can mold Jesus, pretend that Jesus came to fulfill our plans, but the crowds in Jerusalem couldn't. When they realized Jesus wasn't who they wanted him to be, they had to go find a new hero. They had to keep looking for another king while us. We think we can keep Jesus, but pretend he's here to get us to where we want to go. There's a physicist called Alan Lightman, and he has a book on the, the universe, and he catalogs all of what's invisible. Uh, he catalogs that which we cannot see. He, the expanding universe, the spin of the earth, microwaves and ra radio waves, the majority of the electromagnetic spectrum, the deletion of time, the wavy nature of subatomic particles. I don't really know what this stuff is is, but he says it's all invisible. Another person, Akigal Bush, in her book, How to Disappear, says that in the 21st century, the chasm between what we know and what we see is ever-widening. We know far more than we can see. To make sense of the world, scientists have had to come up with what's called dark matter, which is thought to take up 27% of the known universe, and also dark energy taking up 28% of the known universe, leaving the world that is visible to the human eye with a mere 5%. And what that means is that there are huge aspects of our lives, what keeps us alive and what makes sense of our world that remain invisible. We know immense segments of human knowledge and experience that remain unseen. And yet, we are a culture that is consumed with the visible. We live for, we die for what can be seen by others. Our agenda is our titles and our prestige and our image and our reputation, it has become normative to assume that the rewards of life are public in nature, that our lives can be measured by how we are seen, not by what we do, but by how we are seen. And if our lives aren't Instagrammable, if our lives aren't visually appealing, if we don't have titles, prestige, and reputation, has Jesus really given us anything? Did Jesus really die for us if we can't see the reward? And nobody else can see the reward. Is it real if it's invisible? While the crowds in Jerusalem were still hopeful that Jesus came to bring national freedom, they were waving their palm branches shouting, Hosanna, 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 and the Pharisees were watching on. And we see what the Pharisees were thinking in verse 19. It says, So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you, that we are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. And what the Pharisees were likely saying is, is, is an exaggeration because they were feeling overwhelmed with what they were seeing. But, but John, who wrote the gospel... He uses this statement to shift the attention, and he uses it as irony 
Because in the next verse, in verse 20, we read this. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks, non-Jews, people that represent the rest of the world. The Pharisees' statement was truer than they maybe realized. And it says in verse 21, So these Greeks came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. John is lifting the reader's attention away from the streets of Jerusalem and getting us to zoom out, not just to see what is happening locally, but see what's happening globally. Not just in the first world century in Judaism, but what is happening in the world, full stop. And what's interesting is we don't really know if these Greeks got to meet Jesus, but Jesus continues the same thread of broadening the scope of the conversation, and he starts using universal language, world, whole world, incorporating language, words for us, and Jesus answers them and says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. When Jesus says this, when Jesus says the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, what he is saying is that from now on, my death is imminent. We are within the hour of my crucifixion. But Jesus uses this strange term, it's my time to be glorified. And you might read that and think, that's a weird way for Jesus to refer to his death, and I agree. Because to be glorified means to be celebrated, to be lifted up, to be rejoiced over, to be loved, to be adored, to be seen. To be crucified is not to be glorified. And Jesus, you were being glorified. Back when you fed the 5,000, we wanted to make you king. When you raised Lazarus from the dead, there was people running around your feet, trying to get behind you, in front of you, witnessing and amazed at who you are, following you. Remember the palm branches? Remember Hosanna? But Jesus, you sat on a donkey. You could have encouraged it. You weren't interested in being glorified. Jesus, you lived a simple life. Without titles, without prestige, without image, without reputation. Why not speak about being glorified? Jesus has already answered that question previously in John, in John chapter 8, verse 54. Jesus, he's speaking to the religious leaders, and we don't have time to go into the context, but Jesus says this, listen to this, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me. If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me. When the crowds wanted to make Jesus king after he had fed the 5,000, he kept moving. When the palm branches were waving and people were shouting, Hosanna, 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 he jumped on a donkey. 
Because Jesus, and listen to this, Rogers Park, Jesus had a fundamental preference for the glory of another world. Jesus had a fundamental preference for the glory of another world. He had a fundamental preference for the glory that came and could only come from his Father. He had a fundamental preference to be seen by his Father. He wanted his Father to celebrate him and lift him up and rejoice over him and adore him. Jesus had a fundamental preference for the glory of another world. Palm leaves and accolades and crowns were insignificant compared to what he desired from his Father. And he knew the route to receiving that glory was through the sacrificial obedience through his death on a cross. So, so to go to the cross was he knew to be seen, to be adored, to be glorified by his Father. Jesus had a fundamental preference for the glory of another world. Jesus' life, and especially in the week before his death, if we look at it, Jesus models for us what it means to live with a fundamental preference for the glory of another world. He ignores the accolades of this world and walks with single-minded devotion to the cross. And then he speaks directly to us in verse 25. And he correlates his life with ours and says, whoever, whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. And when Jesus says to hate your life in this world, the assumption is you have a life to love in another world. And when he says hate this world, he's just exaggerating what should be our fundamental preference for another world. Fundamental preference. It's a matter, this verse is a matter of what our hearts are clinging to. Whoever's hearts are clinging to their life here now will lose it all. But whoever's hearts are clinging to their life in another world will keep it forever. Whoever's hearts are clinging to the accolades and titles of the here and now will lose them. But whoever's hearts are clinging to the love of God will keep his love forever. Rogers Park, there is incredible freedom when we live with a fundamental preference for the well done that comes from our Heavenly Father. Firstly, because it was purchased for us. It was not gained through our merit. We share in the glory of Christ, and that's good. Secondly, there is incredible freedom when we live with a fundamental preference for the love that comes from our Heavenly Father because it allows us to turn up to work this week and not sweat it. We can live simple. We can walk through the crowds, we can swap palm branches away, ride our donkey focused, knowing that it's the affirmation and the love of God we need and through Christ we have. Knowing it's the affirmation and love of God we need and through Christ we have. When Jesus was before Pilate, Jesus told him, my kingdom is not of this and we, 
of this world, and we, the children of God, can say the same thing. My kingdom is not of this world. But to do this, we're going to close here, but to do this, we are going to have to cling to the invisible, to the unseen. We're talking about clinging to an invisible kingdom in a culture that is consumed with the visible. It's hard. Listen to this. Birds. Birds not only perceive gradations of color that we miss, but extra color cones in their eyes, in their retinas, allow them to perceive colors that we are unable to imagine. By discerning ultraviolet light, bees see patterns on flowers invisible to us and use these patterns to locate nectar. The flowers outside, I didn't write this, the flowers outside my kitchen have discs of hues on their petals that I cannot see. The range of light visible to us is only a small part of the electromagnetic spectrum. The entire world is shining with things that we cannot see. One day the kingdom of God is going to come in its entirety. And when it comes, it will be revealed that the kingdom of God was already here. Not fully, but here. Right now, the kingdom of God cannot be branded, it cannot be gathered, it cannot be calculated, but a deposit, a sign of the kingdom of God is present in the lives of God's people. It is not where we expect it to be. We don't expect it to be on a donkey. We're looking for swords. It's hidden. It's humble. Children of God, your earthly title and status or lack of earthly title and status has no bearing on who you are in Christ. And what God can do with your life. I'm learning that if we really want to understand our story, to see our story, to see the story of the world, as of the universe, where it came from, and where we're going, we don't need to take this book and place it in our lives. We need to take our lives and place it in this book. And then we'll see. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you through your word that we can see that there is meaning in our lives. We can see that there is hope in our lives. We can see that there's purpose in our lives. We can see that there is greater things that are beyond our lives. God, we thank you for what you're doing in the world. God, we thank you that you're drawing people to yourself. God, we thank you that you've drawn us into your, your family, into the church, to be your people, to be a deposit of your kingdom, God, until it comes. So, God, we wait, and we wait with anticipation until this whole world is made new, this whole world flourishes and sings as it's intended to, God. So, God, in the meantime, help us to be faithful, God. 
God, help us to realize that your kingdom is in the humble, that your kingdom is on donkeys. Your kingdom is, is not in what is celebrated by the world. Your kingdom is what is, is what is rejected by the world. So God, give us deep hope, God, this morning. Give us a deep sense of joy and hope in the gospel that you, we're your children and that you're for us, God, and you're working through our lives. In your name, amen.